Hey, this is Jeremy Isaacs, lead pastor of Generations Church, where we want to live like it matters. For more information about our church, you can visit us at g.church. We hope you're encouraged by today's message. Thanks again for listening. Hey, we're glad that you are here. Uh, It's a great season in our church right now. It's summer, and our family ministries is having a blast this summer. We just completed week one of our youth camp. So our high school students, we sent a group of about 21 uh, to high school camp this last week, and I've seen a bunch of the pictures. I've already heard the stories from our leaders and some parents that texted after it was over to say, hey, this is what my kid experienced. And so I'm thankful for that. I'm thankful for those of you that have given through uh, legacy makers here at Generations Church. You allowed us to scholarship some kids and just help families that needed to get their kids there, wanted to get their kids there, but maybe weren't able to do so. And so thank you for your generosity. But they had a blast. It was an amazing experience for them to connect to one another and connect to God in a, in a unique way. Tomorrow, our middle school students and leaders leave. I think we've got a group of about 26 or 27 of those, about 15 or 16 boy campers and about four, five, six girl campers and some leaders. It's gonna be a blast. They're gonna have a great time. If you're not sure who the high school leaders were that went this last week. It's the people that look exhausted today and have very little voice. Uh, that's always the telltale sign of camp workers after it's over. But then next week is our, uh, the following week, I guess, is our grade school camp. So Miss Brittany is going to take our uh, grade schoolers and they've got about a dozen going to that camp. And so I'm thankful for our family ministries. I'm thankful for Pastor Aaron and Bethany and for Brittany as they lead our family ministries during the summer. Just a lot of great things. And I told you last week, and parents, you've already had this information, but sports camp is coming up July 19th through the 21st. This is our version of Vacation Bible School. And so your kids are going to get some instruction in their sport of their choice. Uh, But really, it's the spiritual training over those days that's going to be even more important. You can register online to be a part of that. We want your kids to come be a part of sports camp. Today, we are continuing in a series that we started last week, Summer in the Psalms. And I said to you last week that I felt like this series over these two months really had the opportunity to be formative for so many of us, just to really help us to lean into what is kind of the Hebrew hymn book, right? And and we talked about that these were songs of praise. They were these poetry pieces that really kind of laid into the emotion of the human experience. And so I've fallen in love with the Psalms again as I read them because it helps me to feel like I'm normal whenever I'm experiencing the swings, the highs and lows of emotion as we kind of walk day to day. And so we talked last week about Psalm 1. We started in this idea that the fruit of your life is really determined by the roots in your life. That it matters who you're listening to and it matters who you're hanging out with because that really helps to shape the behaviors of our lives. It shapes the things that we do. And, and as we pursue righteousness and we try to abstain from wickedness, like we're pointing our arrow towards Jesus Christ and we're staying in pursuit of who he is in our lives. And as we do that, God is helping to bless us and to help us to be shaped more and more into the image of his son, Jesus Christ. And so as we dove into Psalm 1 last week, we were really talking about like, why is it important for us to read these Psalms? And so we're going to continue in that thought today as we look to Psalm 34. We're not kind of going in order, but I did say to you last week that there's two months, so that's about 60 days, but there's also about 49 days in this series of Sundays. And so of the 150 Psalms, you could read about three a day during the series and just knock them all out, just read them all. And I said that some days you could read four, five, six of them in less than five minutes. Psalm 119 is going to take you a bit, right? So you're going to read that. It's going to take you a little while, but let's dive in. Let's read these together to really determine the emotion of the human experience. We also said last week, as we're kind of setting the stage for where we're at today, that of the 150 Psalms, we know the author of about half of them. About 75 or so, we know explicitly who wrote that Psalm. 
Uh, the other half, we have some thoughts on some of them. Others of them, we don't know at all who wrote them. Uh, you have about a thousand year history, a period of time from about 1440 BC all the way to the Babylonian exile of about 500 BC where these Psalms were written and collected together. They were sung in the temple to different melodies and they were really the, the way that they engaged worship and sang songs just like we did over the last few minutes. And so it's important for us to recognize that these collected works all over this time period really help us to see how God interacts with humanity and how humanity can interact with God. That's why the Psalms are so powerful. One of the cool things about Psalm 34, where we're going to spend our time today, is that it is written in a Hebrew acrostic poem. Now you're like, I I don't know what that means. That means that every verse of the psalm is the next letter in the Hebrew alphabet. It starts with the next letter. And so maybe you're not even still kind of familiar with how that works. So I know you didn't know this. I'm a poet. I I know you didn't more familiar. I'm not. I'm not a poet at all. But I did write an English acrostic poem so that you could know how this would look. I asked them to throw this up on the screen. This is what I wrote this week. A little boy, baseball was his game. Catcher was his role. Daniel was his name. Oh, every day he tried to get better for he wanted to go pro get better he did his father's money he did so i'm not sure how much longer i can go just stop now so i'm gonna stop right there okay so that's terrible right it's horrible i'm not a poet and you did know it but this is the idea of what an acrostic type poem is every line begins with the next letter in the alphabet so psalm 34 is a hebrew acrostic poem and you're like why does that matter Because to me, if this is a worship chorus, if this is a poem, this speaks to the creatives. This speaks to those who take pictures and can draw and can paint and who have creative writing skills. I don't really have all of those types of skills. Some of you do. This is worship unto God. This is the ability for you not just to like feel what you feel, but to be able to learn how to express what you feel in creative ways to say like, God, I'm not just going to kind of vomit all of my words and thoughts to you. There's a place for that too. But with intention, I'm going to craft something out of the creative genius that you've placed inside of me that says like, this is how I feel about you. This is what I'm expressing and what I'm experiencing in the human experience right now. So it matters that we take time in worship to really develop our thoughts in ways that honor God. So if you got a Bible, flip with me to Psalm 34. If you got a, an app, you can use that as well. That's not cheating. Psalm 34, here's what we're going to read together. I will praise the Lord at all times. I will constantly speak his praises. I will boast only in the Lord. Let all who are helpless take heart. Come, let us tell of the Lord's greatness. Let us exalt his name together. I prayed to the Lord and he answered me. He freed me from all my fears. Those who look to him for help will be radiant with joy. No shadow of shame will darken their faces. In my desperation, I prayed, and the Lord listened. He saved me from all my troubles. For the angel of the Lord is a guard. He surrounds and defends all who fear him. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Oh, the joys of those who take refuge in him. Fear the Lord, you, his godly people. For those who fear him will have all they need. Even strong young lions sometimes go hungry, but those who trust in the Lord will lack no good thing. Come, my children, and listen to me, and I will teach you to fear the Lord. Does anyone want to live a, long, a life that is long and prosperous? Then keep your tongue from speaking evil and your lips from telling lies. Turn away from evil and do good. Search for peace and work to maintain it. The eyes of the Lord watch over those who do right. His ears are open to the cries for, for help. But the Lord turns his face against those who do evil. He will erase their memory from the earth. The Lord hears his people when they call to him for help. He rescues them from all their troubles. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted. He rescues those whose spirits are crushed. The righteous person faces many troubles, but the Lord comes to the rescue each time. 
For the Lord protects the bones of the righteous, not one of them is broken. Calamity will surely destroy the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be punished. But the Lord will redeem those who serve him. No one who takes refuge in him will be condemned. Today, I want to talk about one of those difficult parts of our faith journey. We're all on a faith journey. Whether you've been walking with the Lord a really, really long time in relationship with him, or today you're here because you're trying to figure out who he is and how he might engage you in some way, we're all on some level, this spiritual continuum, this faith journey. And so we're going to talk about that today. And I want to dig into one of those difficult parts. To do that, I want to start by going back to the first three verses we just read in Psalm 34. This is what we read. I will praise the Lord at all times. I will constantly speak his praises. I will boast only in the Lord. Let all who are helpless take heart. Come, let us tell of the Lord's greatness. Let us exalt his name together. Now, I have crazy thoughts sometimes, and when I'm reading verses one through three of Psalm 34, you know the image I get in my head? Anybody ever seen the movie Braveheart? If you haven't, you're missing a great thing. Just turn on TNT like any day, and it's on there. So I love the scene where William Wallace is on his horse, and he's just kind of circling the guys that are supposed to be his friends, but are kind of his sneaky enemies, and he's just like looking at them. And he's just kind of circling them on the horse. As I'm reading these verses, it's like he's so confident. As David is writing, it's like, I will praise the Lord at all times. Constantly, I will speak his praise. It's almost like he's just staring at the devil like, I dare you. I dare you. I mean, there's so much confidence as I read these verses. That's what I want to be like. That's what in everyday life, that's what I want to feel all the time, right? I want to have that kind of confidence and boldness in my faith. It's like, no matter what, every single moment of every day, I will boast only in the Lord. That's what I want. But as I'm reading Psalm 34, I recognize that what we said last week is that many of these psalms, we can connect the dots to other stories in the Old Testament at the same time. Last week, we said that Psalm 59 connects to the events of Psalm, uh, 1 Samuel 119. So what we said is if you read Psalm 59, it's awesome by itself. It's like my enemies are surrounding me in the night and they're saying vicious things to me. It's like, okay, God, you're going to have to be my refuge. That's powerful. But if you also recognize that David was writing that in 1 Samuel 19, as he sits in his living room, looking out the window as Saul's army surrounds his house in the middle of the night, and his wife says, if you don't escape in the night, you're going to be killed in the morning. It adds a lot of emotion to Psalm 59. So what we have in Psalm 34 is with this confidence that David's like, I will always boast in God. At the same time, he's experiencing the events of 1 Samuel chapter 21. So in 1 Samuel 21, David has been on the run. He just got word from his best friend, Jonathan, that Jonathan's dad, Saul, is going to kill him. Like if he finds him, today's your day, you're going to die. David takes off on the run and he shows up in this city named Nob and he interacts with the priest there, Ahimelech, and he gets some holy bread to eat because he's so hungry. He finds Goliath's sword there. And so like there's a really cool interaction that happens in 1 Samuel 21. And then as he leaves Nob, he escapes to the Philistine city of Gath. He leaves Saul territory. He goes to the area of the Philistines and he shows up in Gath, but the Philistines still remember that David's the guy that killed Goliath and they're a little bit scared of him. And he thinks, David does, that perhaps the king, King Ashish of Gath is going to try to kill him if he figures out that he's there. So look at this in 1 Samuel 21, beginning in verse 12. David heard these comments and was very afraid of what King Ashish of Gath might do to him. So he pretended to be insane, scratching on doors and drooling down his beard. Finally, King Ashish said to his men, must you bring me a madman? We already have enough of them around here. Why should I let someone like this be my guest? 
So you've got David in Psalm 34 that's like, I will declare and boast only in God of his greatness and his goodness. At all times, I will praise him. Same guy, same time period, is so afraid as he's on the run for his life that he's acting insane, drooling on himself to make people think he's crazy so they'll let him escape. A man of faith and a man of fear. So often in our faith journey, we are convinced that to have any faith means that we possess no fear, means that we possess no doubt, no uncertainty, no anxiety about the decisions that we're experiencing, the circumstances of our lives. And yet what we see time and time again is this duality of faith and fear in all of these incredible men and women of God throughout scripture. I'll give you four quick examples from the Old Testament. This is not an exhaustive list. This was honestly like top of the head thoughts, okay? Isaac was afraid of his brother Esau's revenge. God would use Isaac in this incredible sovereign story of God throughout the Old Testament, but Isaac was terrified that his brother was going to kill him, so he sent his family and his livestock before him just to try to get on Esau's good side before Isaac showed up. Moses, he hears from God while hiding in the wilderness from the authorities. Like God would use him mightily. God speaks to him in a burning bush. But the reason he's out there near the burning bush is because he's afraid and he ran. This is fear and faith all at the same time. Joshua was afraid of defeat at the hands of the enemy after they already won the battle of Jericho. He's already seen the walls come down. And yet when he faces a little bit of adversity, he just cries out to God like, what are you doing? Why'd you bring us here? If you were going to kill us here, why didn't you just let us stay back there? I don't understand what you're doing. Fear, faith, all together. Elijah was so afraid of Jezebel and asked God, like, I guess I shouldn't even keep living. And this was after he watched the 400 prophets of Baal, 450 prophets of Baal at the top of the mountain. He sees God pour down fire from heaven, this incredible, miraculous thing. He should be filled with faith. But he hears one word from Jezebel, and it's, it's fear that takes over the circumstance. Faith. And fear, faith, and doubt, uncertainty in our lives. So David leaves Gath in 1 Samuel 21, and he arrives at the cave of Adullam in 1 Samuel 22. Look at this, beginning in verse 1. So David left Gath. He escaped to the cave of Adullam. Soon his brothers and all of his relatives joined him there. Then others began coming, men who were in trouble or in debt, who were just discontented until David was the captain of about 400 men. Now David is going to be king And so Saul is still the king, and Saul's got David on the run, and so David shows up at this cave, and all of a sudden, there's some people that hear he's there, and they just start showing up. So it's his relatives, his brothers, it's people that are in debt, people that are discontented, people that are in trouble. They just start showing up. And so you hear this, and it's like, well, I mean, this is kind of a ragtag bunch. This is like a bunch of down and outers. And maybe you feel like that today. Maybe you felt like that in the last few weeks or the last few months. Like, I don't, I don't have a lot to offer. I'm kind of on the run. And if I found out there was a guy we could hang out with and maybe accomplish something, and like if he starts elevating, maybe he takes me with him, it's like, okay, then I might have been in that group too. But the same group of people is described in 1 Chronicles chapter 12. Same group, same kind of idea here of David assembling these groups of people that would eventually go with him to the palace and accomplish great things. First Chronicles 12, 1 and 2. The following men joined David at Ziklag while he was hiding from Saul, son of Kish. They were among the warriors who fought beside David in battle. All of them were expert archers, and they could shoot arrows or sling stones with their left hand as well as their right. You ever felt like that? I'm a down and outer. I'm discontented. I got problems. But I mean, I can... I can also throw some rocks. Like, I, I got some skills. I wish people would see what I'm good at. I, I, I've got some good things going for me, but I mean, I, this faith and, and fear, faith and doubt, it's the duality of our lives 
in this faith journey. You ever feel like two versions of the same person? This is the picture of David's men, David's mighty men. This is the picture of David himself proclaiming God's greatness, but so afraid that he pretends to be insane. Let's keep reading in verses four through eight of Psalm 34. So I prayed to the Lord and he answered me. He freed me from all my fears. Those who look to him for help will be radiant with joy. No shadow of shame will darken their faces. In my desperation, I prayed and the Lord listened. He saved me from all my troubles. For the angel of the Lord is a guard. He surrounds and defends all who fear him. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Oh, the joys of those who take refuge in him. Do you hear the tone? Do you hear the change in his heart? Like even as we were declaring the greatness of God, now it's like, man, when I, when I cried out, he listened. There's this faith piece of hoping and longing and seeing that God is good. He says, taste and see that the Lord is good. It's one of the most famous verses here in this psalm. On our Communicator Sunday, back on Memorial Day weekend, Randall Ivey, a part of our church, he spoke on this one verse. If you weren't here, I encourage you to go back and listen to the podcast. It was a great day of hearing from so many within our church, but a great uh, talk there, message that Randall gave about Psalm 34 and 8, taste and see that the Lord is good. I love that verse. You know why? Because I love food. Like, it, it would have been great, and I love to read too, but if it would have said, like, read and discover that the Lord is good, I'd have been like, okay, I can do that. That kind of feels like homework, though, a little bit. But to taste and see, my God, that speaks to me. You know why? Because last night I went to a Mexican restaurant. I'm probably going to have Mexican for lunch too. So if you're telling me that I could sit there last night and eat my fajitas and see the goodness of God and the steam that came up off, I have mercy. Like that's what I believe. That God is present in our lives and I can experience his goodness in all the things around me. I can walk out today and see in the clouds and see in nature and in the summer showers that come up out of nowhere and just as quickly seem to leave, that God is orchestrating in his goodness all of the things in the earth. He could have used so many other words. Taste and see that the Lord is loving. Taste and see that the Lord is righteous. Taste and see that the Lord is holy. All of those things would be great, and all of those things are true. But I think, unfortunately, for so many of us, we've just lost that God is good. He's just a good God. And you and I get to experience his goodness, to taste and see for ourselves that he's good. You know, I said that I love food. I I call myself a foodie because that's a fancier way of saying I'm an eater, okay? I love to eat food. My kids do not possess that same love for it. My second son, Branson, we have four kids. Our second son, Branson, when he was younger, he had like a very picky palate, Like the only thing he would eat for a pretty big chunk of his toddler, early adolescent years was chicken nuggets. It's all he would eat. And I can't tell you the number of times he cried and crossed his arms and acted like he was throwing up and all this thing just to not eat whatever had been presented to him. I don't like it. I don't like it. And I said to him what my dad said to me when I was doing the same things as a young boy. How do you know you're not going to like it if you don't try it? right? That's, that's what I was saying, because it just seems, it seems obvious, maybe not to a two-year-old, but it seems obvious to me. It seemed obvious to my dad when he told me, saying, how are you going to know you don't like it if you don't try it? But how many people do we know, they've, they've just decided they don't like God, and they've never tried it. Like, they've just decided they don't like the church. They've never tasted the church. They've just decided they don't like the church. They've decided they don't like God's word. They've never tasted it for themselves. They're just going on like other people's opinions. 
and the stories and what they think it's about. And they've never tasted for themselves the goodness of God to make up their own mind whether or not they like these things. He says, taste and see that God is good. Not allow someone else to taste it and then you form an opinion based on their... No, no, no. Taste for yourself. It's a personal experience. And when you do, here's what I think you'll find. That as all of us are on this faith journey, this duality that we're expressing, faith and doubt, faith and fear, it exists in every faith-filled moment. Because Hebrews chapter 11 tells us that faith is the evidence of things we hope for. It's those things we can't see yet. Which means, if you, if you really unpack this, that every moment where I am living by faith, declaring by faith, I am do, doing so on the edge of doubt. I'm saying like, I'm at the end of my facts. I'm at the end of the doctor's report. I'm at the end of my bank balance. I'm at the end of everything I can do. I've exhausted all of my efforts and all of my opinions. And I come to the edge of that and I have a choice. Do I stop or do I take one more step by faith? The things that I hope for, the things that I haven't yet seen. Faith isn't really faith until it's tested. Until you've tested it to to trust God, can I trust you? To taste for yourselves, is he actually good? I'm going to test you, God. I'm walking into some trouble. I'm walking into uncertainty. There is doubt in my heart because I'm at the end of me. I'm at the end of all the things that I hold in my hand. I can't do anything at this moment but stop or trust. That's faith. Faith and doubt exists at the edge of every faith-filled moment. Every single faith-filled moment. And I think what happens is we assume that all tests are bad. Right? I've heard this from my kids for the last several years as they're in school. It's like, my teacher's trying to fail me. I don't think so, because if your teacher fails everybody, they'll probably start looking at the teacher, right? She's trying to teach you something, and the only way to know if you've learned it is to test you on it. Did they learn the competency, the skills, the information, the knowledge? Did they learn what I was trying to teach them in this unit, this chapter, this section, this semester? So there's a test. But we see tests as bad things. Because we're graded on them and we're not really sure where we land. We go to the doctor and they run tests. They just never run tests for good reasons, it seems like, right? And so then we get like, we get anxious about it. They're like reading the results. They're like holding their clipboard or their iPad or whatever they've got now and they're reading it. And we're just trying to read their face. Like, what are they seeing? What are you, is, it, is it bad? Is it really bad? Am, is, it, is it bad? Like, what are you, can you talk to me? Can you tell me something? I'm getting a little nervous. He's like, we're watching everything and they're not, they're not saying any because we assume that all tests are bad. All results are bad. But James chapter 1 tells us that tests and trials produce something in our lives. That we're incomplete and lacking without tests and trials. That God wants to use those things to teach us something. To complete in us the faith that we are trying to live by. Faith isn't really faith until it's tested. And I would even go a step further and say this. Until it's tested, you haven't tasted it. Until our faith is tested, we haven't tasted His goodness. We haven't tasted it for ourselves. We're unsure if it can be trusted. Faith that isn't tested is fickle. It can't be trusted because we don't know if it actually exists or not. And so we're always, always on the edge, always on the precipice of faith and doubt. And where do we land in all of this? Which brings us to 
this amazing story in the Gospels. It's one of my favorite stories. I've referenced it a number of times. It's in Mark chapter 9. It's this place. It's called the Mount of Transfiguration. Jesus has got the multitudes, and then he's got the 12 disciples, and out of those 12, he pulls three close, Peter, James, and John. He pulls those three in, and he says, hey, guys, let's go for a walk. He takes them up to the top of the mountain, and at the top of the mountain, he is literally transfigured. His appearance changes before them. He begins to shine this bright light color. His appearance changes, and then right in front of them appears Moses and Elijah. Now, that's awesome because neither one of those guys are still living on the earth. So this is a supernatural moment at the top of this mountain. Now, interestingly, if you understand the scriptures, Jesus is standing there with Peter, James, and John, and Moses and Elijah are the Old Testament. Moses' law, Elijah, prophets. Jesus said, I came to fulfill the law and the prophets. You have the entire Bible at the top of the mountain. Jesus is standing there transfigured before them, all the law, all the prophets, and Peter does what Peter always does. This is awesome. Let's stay here. Let's build tents. Moses, Elijah will hang out here together. Like, we'll sleep outside. Forget the other guys. Let's leave them at the bottom. This is awesome. Let's hang right here, Jesus. And I don't know if Jesus did what I think Jesus would do. I think he just kind of side-eyes Peter a little bit. Like, who invited that guy? Like, he doesn't get it. Like, that was a mistake. I was probably a mistake. No, he he says, no, no, we got to go back down. Let me just pause for a second and say to you as parents... I have always believed that youth camp is like the Mount of Transfiguration. You leave aside all of the hustle and bustle of everyday life to go away together with some friends and to just see Jesus, who you already know, in a new way. And to have community together and experience together and to grow together, and it's this amazing thing. And then at the end, you're like, let's live here. Let's live at youth camp. I've tried to do it. I want to do it, right? Let's live at camp. And your leader's like, no, load up the truck. We got to go. And then you come back from camp. And it always seems like I had a, a lady after the first service that she came, she was crying. And she said, I, I remember, she said, I'm, she said, I didn't say this. She said, she said, I'm old. She didn't look old to me. She said, I'm old. She said, a long, long time ago, I remember going to camp and I wanted to live there and stay there. And you had to come back. And it seems like every time we came back from camp, it just, just life picked up so fast. That's what Jesus experienced when he came down the mountain. He walks up on this scene where there's a family. There's a dad and a son, and we assume friends and family around them. And while Jesus and Peter, James, and John are at the top of the mountain in this incredible spiritual high, this amazing moment, in the same moment, at the same time, this dad has a need, and he brings his son who is sick to the disciples. He's trying to find Jesus. He's heard this guy's a miracle worker. He brings his son to the disciples and they can do nothing for him. So Jesus comes back down the mountain. I'm sure Peter, James, and John are high-fiving behind him like, that was so awesome. I can't wait to tell those guys. They're going to love this. And they walk up and it's pretty tense at the bottom of the mountain. And the dad addresses Jesus. And this is what we read in Mark chapter 9, 17 through 24. A man in the crowd answered, teacher, I brought you my son who is possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. You unbelieving generation, Jesus replied, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. So they brought him. When the spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into convulsions. 
He fell to the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked the boy's father, how long has he been like this? From childhood, he answered. It's often thrown him into the fire or water to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. If you can, said Jesus, everything is possible for one who believes. Immediately, the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. You ever prayed a prayer like that, Father? I mean, if you can do anything, God. Like, I mean, we want him healed, but like, you don't even have to heal him. That's, that's probably a lot. All the doctors say that's impossible. But like, could you just help him not hurt so much? Could you, like, he's been thrown in the fire and the water to try to kill him. Could you, just, could you just lessen the symptoms a little bit? Like, if, if you could just do anything, God. And, and I don't want to read this into the text here, but it's, it's, there's a little bit of a sarcastic response from Jesus. And I don't think it's derogatory, but he's like, if I can, if I can do anything, anything's possible to those who believe. And the dad finds himself in the same place that we always find ourselves In moments of faith, moments where faith is needed, the dad lands on both sides. He says, I do believe. I, I boast only in the Lord. I declare the goodness and greatness of God. I dare you. I do believe. Help my unbelief. I'm afraid. I mean, the doctors, you wouldn't believe the stuff they're telling us. How long has he been like this? Since he was a boy? It's been a long time. We're tired. I do believe. Could you just help me with that part of me that's struggling? There's this beautiful picture in the original text here. We don't have access to it in the English language. The word believe is personal and active. He's looking at Jesus and he said, I believe in you. I believe in who you say you are. I believe right now that you can do what you say you can do. But the word unbelieve is not just the negative connotation of that word. This word is impersonal and inactive. It says, while I believe in who you are and what you've declared, my circumstances overwhelm me. The details of the report and his health and our history and the tenure of his sick, I'm so tired. I believe in who you are, but I don't know how to reconcile that with what I see. It's the things I hope for and the things that are unseen, I'm in. But the things that I see, they hurt. The things that I see, the things that I know, like I'm standing at the edge, I don't know what to do. That dad represents a lot of what we've experienced in our lives. For sure it does for me. It's David who declares that he boasts only in the greatness and the power of God while on the run for his life, acting like he's insane. So they won't kill him, but they'll send him away. The guy that could declare the Lord is great. Let all who are helpless take heart. You don't know why he could write that. He could write that because he feels it. He's helpless. I take heart in who you are. This is King David. And what I see in all of these stories woven together is this great truth. Fear is a feeling. 
But faith is a choice. Fear is a fear. I feel it. I'm overwhelmed by it. It just rises up before I even know that it's there. It's like, I, I feel it. It's here. It's on me. It's an emotion. It's a feeling. And I come to this spot where I have to choose to be led by those feelings or to choose to trust. Fear's a feeling, but faith is a choice. So how do we get to that choice? How do we make that choice time after time after time? Three quick things. We've already seen them in the text. The first is test. Test. Verse 6 of, 30, of Psalm 34 says, He saved me from all my troubles. You're going to walk through some troubles. Jesus said that. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Isaiah tells us that it rains on the just and the unjust. You are not exempt from troubles. But tests produce something. They show us something about God and who he is and how we can rely on him. And so we lean into tests, not try to run away from tests. We test him. He's not intimidated by that. The second thing is we taste. We don't just go by what somebody else told us and what somebody else experienced and what our grandmother or grandfather or mom or dad or the pastor or your favorite Instagram clip. Or We don't go by those things. We dig in for ourselves and we taste and see his goodness. We taste it for ourselves. We experience it for ourselves. And when we test it, when we taste it, we can trust it. We can trust it. Verse 10, but those who trust in the Lord will lack no good thing. Psalm 34, 8 gets all the press. But perhaps the best verse in Psalm 34 is verse 19. The righteous person faces many troubles, but the Lord comes to the rescue each time. Not sometimes, not every now and then. The Lord comes to the rescue each time. So you can believe and be afraid and be uncertain and be anxious. But because you've tested him, because you've tasted him, you can trust him. You can trust him. I'm going to ask you to bow your head and close your eyes just for a moment. Wrap up this time together. We've worshiped together. We've prayed together. We've gone to God's word together. Maybe today you would say, you know what? I need to trust God for my salvation. I recognize the truth of the words of Romans 3 are speaking to me, that I've fallen short of the glory of God. I'm a sinner in need of a savior. I need him to forgive my sins and be my Lord. If that's you, would you just lift your hand right now? We wanna pray for you, give you the opportunity to trust God for salvation. If you're watching online, making that decision, let us know so that we can pray for you as well, help you take next steps. If you would say to me today, Jeremy, for me, it's, it's not really about salvation. I just need to trust God more. Maybe I need to acknowledge some testing and really kind of taste for myself, but I need to trust God more than I've been trusting him. When I come to the end of my facts and the end of my feelings and the end of all that stuff, I need to take some steps that are completely reliant on faith. If that's you, would you just lift your hand right where you're at? Thank you so much. Thank you so much. God, we thank you today for our time together. We thank you for the opportunity to worship and to pray and to fellowship with one another and just to interact with one another. God, we thank you across these services in person and online. You've met with us. 
And God, we thank you for people that are making the decision today to trust you with their lives for eternity. The story of their life and their family is changing right now as they trust you for salvation. Be the forgiver of their sins and the Lord of their life. And God, we pray for those that lifted their hand today to say, I need to trust him more. Help us not run away from the test. Help us not just rely on other people's opinions, but to really lean in and taste and see your goodness for ourselves. And God, when we do, help us to trust you more than we ever have before. We thank you for all these things. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thanks again for listening. If today's message was an encouragement to you, we invite you to share it with your friends and family. Maybe subscribe, rate, and review the podcast. It just helps us spread the word about what God's doing here at Generations Church. For more information about the church, visit us at g.church. Have a great day and God bless.